Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 256, we have a group discussion of buckle complications. We got a great response to our two-minute vitreoretinal complications, reviewing some of the common complications that can happen during vitrectomy. And we got requests to come back with maybe something about buckles. So here we are. We spend about two to three minutes per complication regarding things that can happen during the course of a scleral buckle procedure and how to manage it intraoperatively. If you like this episode and you have ideas to a similar episode in the future or to continue in this vein with a different sort of complication reviews, just let us know and we'd be happy to do it. Remember, you can claim CME credits for this podcast episode and many other podcast episodes on our website. Uh, that's the American Academy of Ophthalmology website link in the episode description. You can also find financial disclosures for all participants. None of them have any relevant disclosures for this podcast episode. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by three retina specialists and friends from across the United States. Uh, we're going to work our way east to west because uh, I can't do alphabetical order when we have more than two people. Uh, first, we have Dr. Ajay Kurian in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Ajay, welcome. Thanks for having me back, Jay. Next, we have Dr. Basil Williams uh, from Cincinnati, Ohio. Basil, welcome back. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, we have reigning... Uh, Podcast Complications Champion, uh, staring down the barrel of a hurricane in Hawaii, which is the one thing she thought she'd never have to deal with after she moved from Miami, Dr. Sarah Reed. Thank you for uh, that dubious honor, Jay. Thanks for having me back. So Sarah, Basil, and Ajay, Sarah has an unfortunate advantage because she knows the rules of the game, but we are doing this. This is a complications rapid fire. So we did one with uh, Sriji Patel and Sarah that uh, went up about a month ago. People really, really liked that. Uh, where we kind of pick different complications that can happen during surgery and we rapid fire said how would you manage it what would you do how do you avoid it last time we were pretty tight on the timing i think we did like couldn't remember if it was a minute or two minutes but we have a bigger panel and some issues that may take longer to discuss we're going to set a clock for three minutes per complication i've got 10 complications here if we have time i have a bonus number 11. so <laughs> ajay you are the easternmost person which means you've been awake the longest today which means you're probably the most alert. So I'm going to let you start. So starting from the beginning of the case, you are starting a buccal procedure. You start the congenital peritomy or your fellow starts the congenital peritomy and notices there is significant congenital scarring and you're having issues getting the congenital open or separated from the sclera. What do you do? Uh, any pointers and do you ever abort the buccal? Uh, so I think the, the most important things uh, when I see a lot of congenital scarring is to try to remember about the history um, as well as inspect the eye to see if there's any other signs of previous surgeries that I might not have known about, um, especially muscle surgeries that sometimes people are just so young um, when they have it that they forget to mention it. Um, but definitely want to reassess, make sure that there's no glaucoma hardware or anything like that that would really um, make the buckle uh, tough to put on. Um, I've never had a point where I can't dissect enough. Usually with a lot of blunt dissection and reverse scissoring, you can free up the conge to be able to get it off. But, but I could imagine a scenario where there's just too much scarring that, that it doesn't make sense to, to put the buckle on as long as you feel like, like you 
to be able to meet all your surgical goals um, with just as attractive Basil, any pointers for what not to do? Well, I, I think this is a good example of a situation where your preoperative exam is going to be extremely important in your conversation with the patient. Obviously, by the time you're in the operating room, uh, it's a little bit late for that. Um, but I think you can also, uh, if you have a lot of conjunctival scarring to start off with, then I would take a look around 360 degrees and see if there's anywhere that uh, there doesn't seem to be that much scarring. And perhaps if you initiate the pyridomy in that location, uh, then you can kind of blunt dissect your way around towards the scarring. And you might, once you already have a good starting point, you might have a little bit of easier access. Well, Basil, you're going to take the second one. Maybe three minutes is too long. I'm changing the rules midway. Two minutes per, per complication. <laughs> this is great. I love This is like Calvin Ball. Um, so you hook the muscles, and you move on with your case, Basil, and you pass the buckle, and the patient comes in the next day, and they're completely exotropic. What could have happened when you hooked the muscle, and how would you avoid it? Well, so I think there's a combination of factors. I mean, sometimes you can have a situation where uh, the block may stun a muscle, uh, and so it could be related to the block. But in this case, if we're presuming that it's related to uh, the muscle being split um, or only partially isolated, uh, you want to think about before you're uh, isolating the muscle, the orientation of the muscle where kind of centrally it's a little bit more anterior. And so you want to angle in the quadrant uh, away from the, the, the oblique quadrant, I guess. And then as you sweep towards the muscle, you'll start coming anterior. If there's any doubt that you don't have the muscle, then I would just come back the other way with the second muscle hook uh, to make sure that you uh, grasp the remaining fibers. Sometimes you can see it. Uh, I think, you know, with time experience, it's a little bit easier to, to make sure that you have all of the muscle. But yeah, I would come back with the uh, second muscle hook just to make sure. Sarah, any additional tips? Um, so I'd say... Baz's point about the block is a really good one. It's, I've had plenty of patients, even without a buckle, who come in with some uh, muscle paralysis on the first or even through the first week. You know, usually I put in gas so that eye is so blurry that it's not an issue and they don't notice. But every now and then they will notice um, some diplopia. And, and really just I would wait as my first thing to do. Um, I agree completely. I also um, use a Q-tip to dissect on each side of the muscle to make sure that I'm seeing bears clear on either side. And then kind of thinking about the muscle anatomy, when you're doing the superior rectus, you want to hook temporally um, to try to avoid the superior oblique. That's the only time where there's another muscle running underneath your rectus. And I think that's where you're most likely to get into trouble. So I think that's especially when you're teaching fellows and residents, the muscle you want to slow down and make sure you're getting right. Number three, Dr. Reed, speaking of fellows and residents, your fellow is doing a great job of hooking and trying to loop the muscles. And next thing you know, they pull on the loop string and there's nothing on it. And you look in the quadrant, there's no muscle. It's gone. Where did it go? Why did it happen? And what are you going to do next? So fortunately, I haven't had this happen myself, but it has happened to another uh, retinal surgeon that I know. So I actually asked about this. And so they had the pediatric surgeon come in and help. But in general, the advice from pediatrics was, if you can't find your muscle, the first thing you want to do is that muscle can retract back really quickly. So you want to get a 6-0 and just start looping anything that you think might be muscle. So just throw a suture in anything that you think may be muscle, any tissue that you think may be tenons next to muscle. And then once you have sort of things there, that's when you can 
start to kind of dissect your way back. And hopefully something will have grabbed onto the muscle or sort of the fascial layers around the muscle. Um, If you get into a situation where you can't find the muscle at all, um, that's when you need to call. I mean, probably either way, you might want to call a pediatric surgeon if you have one available to help you. Um, But that was sort of her advice was start suturing things just with the 6-0 and then hope for the best. So let's backtrack a little bit. So it sounds like you made the leap that this muscle was avulsed. It's no longer attached as an insertion. That's why we can't find it. So Ajay, how can we avoid this? So I think that, um, you know, certainly when you uh, hook your muscle, you want to be gentle when you're putting the muscle hook around it, um, as well as when you have your your nylons, uh, sorry, your silks around the muscle, you want to make sure that you're not pulling too hard on that muscle as you're repositioning the eye. Um, I think especially when you're when you're trying to tort, you want to tort as much as possible, but you have to be cognizant about how much you're you're pulling uh, whenever you're doing that. And and I think all, you know Sarah gave some great points for if it gets evolved, what to what to do to try to find it. Um, but that's definitely a very scary uh, scenario. Yeah, I uh, I I uh, I know we uh, cut down the time, but I just wanted to say that I have seen uh, on rare occasion. When the pyridomy is being initiated, the medial rectus muscle being the most anterior, I've seen where there was some presumed scar tissue uh, of the conjunctiva. And so when the pyridomy was uh, happening, the medial rectus muscle had started to be dissected off. Um, so for people early in surgery, um, if the fellows or the residents are assisting, um, or even if there's previous scar tissue, it's really important to note the insertion of the medial rectus muscle, especially being uh, anterior, uh, and just to make sure that that uh, uh, doesn't get partially disinserted at the time of the pyridomy. Basil, since you made us go over time, I'm going to give you the next one. That's your punishment. So <laughs> you inspect the sclera. So you've hooked the muscles, and now you're at the point where you're ready to put your buckle on or do some cryo, and you inspect the sclera because you learned to do this well when you did your buckles in your training and over time, and you find significant thinning in scleromalacia. In some quadrants, you actually see bulging uveal tissue. What do you do? And again, going back to what we asked at the beginning, do you ever abort the buckle? Right. So first first thing I do after the pyridomy uh, has been performed and the muscles have been isolated, I look in each of the quadrants so I can assess the thickness of the sclera. I think this is particularly important in determining how you're going to approach the buckle. Uh, these days, I mostly do belt loops for my buckles, uh, partially out of preference and partially because I think I'm the only one in my practice that does uh, that doesn't suture, and so I feel like it's a good it's good exposure for the fellows. But uh, it requires some level of thickness to the sclera in order to do the belt loops, and so uh, if there's significant thinning or uh, scleromalacia, there there's an opportunity to do suturing if it's not too thin. If it is really thin, but it's not in an area of any breaks, if I pull out my drawing and I see that there's no breaks or detachment, then I might uh, suture it in the other locations and just not necessarily suture it in that uh, quadrant. And it might slip forward a little bit, but as long as it's covering the breaks uh, where it's important, then it might be okay. Obviously, if you have significant um, uveal prolapse and scleromalacia 360 degrees, then I think that person would not be a good candidate uh, for the buckle, and I would consider uh, stopping at that point uh, and converting, uh, perhaps to have attracted me. Ajay, what are the maximum number of quadrants you'd be feel comfortable either not tunneling or suturing the buckle? Let's say you choose to encircle anyway. 
Yeah, I think I would start feeling uncomfortable if it was more than one. I'd definitely be worried about too much interior migration um, and, and potential issues with the conj down the line. I, I don't know. How do you guys feel? I think more than one, I think it starts getting hairy. Yeah, the most I've ever skipped is one. So, Ajay, your wonderful fellow is doing a great job. You're cryoing with an indirect, and you're watching, and you're talking through, and they're holding the pedal, and they're holding that pedal five seconds, now 10 seconds. You're like, you should be seeing some more. It's 15 seconds. Now it's 20 seconds. They're like, you know, I don't really see anything. What are some possibilities? Let's assume they're getting a good exam. They're actually seeing the break. They're just not getting take. So what are some of the possibilities, and ranging from not scary to scary? So I think uh, I usually start by looking at the machine first, making sure everything is set up, the pedal is fully plugged in, the tank is Hashtag not scary. working with that. So, yeah, so <laughs> usually I say, let's take the cryo out of where you're working, press on the pedal, make sure we see it. I usually do this before we even start, but maybe something got disconnected or something like that. Um, okay, it's that working. That would be the best case scenario. <laughs> yeah, so if it's totally working, um, what you what I usually get worried about is that you might be um, either having issues with your viewing and you're having some degree of parallax and, you know, you're not where you think you are. The other really scary thing is that you might actually be a lot more posterior than where you uh, think you are. And you're looking at the indentation from the shaft instead of the actual bulb of the of the cryo machine. Um, that's something that, that would definitely be the most scary thing uh, because you might be crying apart that's important for vision. Um, and so usually what I recommend when we're starting is that you start more anterior and work your way posterior so you can see that bulb continually move posterior to try to decrease the chance of, of that issue happening. Um, but certainly if, if there's already been a lot of cryoing being done without seeing any, any response and the cryo is working well, I think you really need to look at the posterior pole, make sure that there's no um, significant area that's been cryoed already. Great point, Sarah. I'm going to give you 30 seconds, but one other thing could be the sleeve, not scary, is overriding the where the cryo should be coming, so that's why you're not getting takes. So, Sarah, any other thoughts about shaft artifact? I was going to say the sleeve, Jay. You stole my thunder. I was ready Oh, to we see. definitely did. See, this is all non-scripted. This is organic. This is good. Grass-fed. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say, you know, the one thing, you know, you always worry that, the, that someone might be going too posterior, and especially when you're doing a buckle with indirect, you can't actually visualize what a resident or fellow is doing. When we would do cryo pneumatics in the ER, one of the things I would do is before the resident or fellow would do the cryo, I would look first and then outside of the eye, look to see approximately how much of the shaft was still showing. And then when they're doing the cryo, I can watch to make sure that they're not going deeper than whatever shaft depth I had first measured. You can do that in the OR too as a way to at least eyeball to make sure they're not going in too deep. Um, and then the other thing just about the scleromalacia is this is the one scenario where you really, really want to be careful that the cryo is completely thawed before you come off. Um, I feel like there's a tendency that once the whitening goes away to kind of pull out, um, but those eyes are at increased risk for scleral damage. So you really want to make sure that you're getting a full thaw before you come out on those eyes. Sarah, let's talk about another not scary reason the cryo is not taking. So you get tired of watching the fellow. Do you switch over? There's no shaft burn. You try cryoing, and you're just like, you know what? This isn't taking because this is too bullish. The break is too opposed from the RPE where I'm just cryoing. I'm seeing RPE light up. I just can't get the break to take. What's your general approach for those types of cases? What do you do next? 
So I would say you can consider doing a partial drainage prior to the cryo. Um, the only thing you want to be careful about if you are going to drain prior to your cryo is you want to make sure that you have BFS on a syringe already ready on the table um, because you can get hypotony and that can start to complicate your entire case afterwards. And so um, you can drain earlier in the case to try to get some of the fluid down. I wouldn't do a very aggressive drain because um, you haven't cryoed the brakes. So the last thing you want is to get a bleed or to get other complications. Uh, I think the drainage is probably the, the scariest part of a primary buckle. So if you do need to drain, I would do so gently and trying just to get to the point where you can make sure that your cryo um, has visualization. You can also try um, tightening your buckle a little bit. I've never done that before, but I think theoretically maybe that could work, but um, I haven't actually tried that. So uh, one comment, I'm gonna get Basil's thoughts too, but you can tighten the buckle. It just gets a little harder to get the cryo. One thing we tested in fellowship is the silicone band doesn't transmit cold at all. So you really still have to be under that band to get the cryo to take. Otherwise you get kind of right. this weird take along the edges of the band. So you have to kind of make sure you're under it um, the right way. It's gonna be challenging. Uh, Basil, any other options? Do you sometimes defer cryo and do laser instead? So if you if you're able to uh, support the break really uh, well with the buckle. Um, you can consider afterwards, I guess, putting in a gas bubble and then when they're flat, you can come back and do uh, laser afterwards in the clinic. Uh, the eyes post buckle tend to be a little bit more sore and sometimes having them move the eye in certain positions for laser shortly thereafter can be a little bit more difficult from a pain standpoint, but it is something you can consider. I, I haven't had to do that before. Aja, any comments on anything else before we move on to the next topic? I'd actually like to hear uh, your experience. Does, I know you do the endo laser for some of these cases. Um, have you, when you're doing that, do you drain first and then endo yeah. laser? Or that's are a you, good point. Okay. So that's, that's a technique the, I learned from my colleague here, Dr. Nina Barakal, which is a chandelier buckle using a laser probe instead of cryo, um, with the advantage being that you just have it there. You just go through the same port and laser. You're absolutely right. So you, I drain, pull up the band, and actually once the brake is supported, then I laser. Um, so it's kind of the last step. But the brake has to be fairly flat for that, right, to get the take. So it's not necessarily a situation like Basil was talking about where you'll do kind of a mini buckle pneumatic where it's not necessarily flat at the end of the case, but you put gas in, position them, and it pumps. Uh, in that case, you'd have to do stage laser. Yeah. Uh, next complication. Uh, I think Basil is up. If I have my, We went out of order at some point because I punished him, but that's okay. Uh, Basil. <laughs> You are tunneling, or you're watching someone tunnel, meaning you're making these scleral, partial scleral passes, and you keep telling them, you know, don't stick the blade too deep. If you're going to use a Castro Viejo dissector to make that tunnel, don't go too deep, orient up, and they don't listen to you, and they orient down, they perf into the eye. What do you do immediately? What do you do afterward? And do you change your plan in any way if that happens? Well, so at least initially, uh, when I'm working with a resident or fellow for the first time, then uh, I often will position myself uh, nasally for my half of the buckle just because it tends to be a little bit technically more difficult with the nose. But the other factor I, I keep in mind is where the detachment is. And so if it's early on in the, in the process in terms of them uh, doing these surgeries, I would like for them to be in the area of detached retina. So if it ends up uh, perforating, then that will be a drain. And that will at least be some level uh, of, uh, of benefit uh, to that scenario. So if it turns out that it is in detached retina, uh, either way, I would then take a quick look. Uh, well, I first probably 
uh, suture that area closed and then take a quick look inside the eye uh, because I want to see if there's any incarcerated retina uh, in that location. Most of the time, that's going to be in the area where the buckle is supporting it um, because that's where uh, that's where you're doing your tunnel or potentially where you're doing your suture. And so uh, your buckle should be able to provide some level of support there. But I definitely want to check and see if there's any incarcerated retina. And Sarah, if there is incarcerated retina, what next? So if the retina is incarcerated, I actually haven't had this happen, but I, I think you sort of have, first of all, you want to make sure that you're relieving tension on the eye, that you release the sutures that you're pulling on because you don't want to be making any of this worse. So you want to make sure you're not still having retina sort of dimple out through that lesion. Um, you can try using a Q-tip on the outside of the eye to sort of pro apply some external pressure and hopefully kind of move things back into place. Either way, I would probably also add cryo over that area. If it looks like it's truly incarcerated and, um, and you actually have a, more of a defect or traction on the retina, that's when you may have to consider converting to a vitrectomy, I think. But I think hopefully, especially if this is just going too deep, um, I think more, especially if you're just doing um, the belt loops, I feel like that usually is a fairly benign process when you go deep. Um, I've never had it actually go through anything deeper than the choroid. Um, and so I think just as long as you're releasing pressure and not applying internal pressure that's going to push things out through that defect, I think you're, you're in good shape. Ajay, that was our timer going off, but I was curious, 30 seconds, your thoughts on this complication. Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, when it's with the castrovirus sector, that's when there's actually the potential for a lot of uh, issues in addition to uh, potential for, for retina to uh, come through that wound, you usually will get a very big hemorrhage uh, when that does happen. And so um, I've only had that happen one time. Um, and I think the first most important thing is to pull out the same way that you entered in. If you pull um, just like straight upward, not noticing that you're, you're inside the eye, you're definitely going to cause a lot of bleeding. Um, but but if there is a, a great deal of bleeding and um, and you're very concerned, then that's when I would I would think about converting to a vitrectomy to make sure that I clear everything out, take a look. Um, if it's just a, some degree of retinal incarceration, you're know, certainly trying to get it back in. Um, but if not, and everything else is looking good, I would probably wait to see how it does with adding some cry over there and with the support of the band right there. Um, hopefully, it would still be okay. Um, if it's just a very focal uh, area there. Next, Ajay, I'll let you take this one. So you said, you know what, enough with these tunnels. I'm just going to suture because this is too scary. And this, your fellow says, this is great. I can't really make that big a hole with this. And then they suture and they perf. What do you do next? How do you avoid perforation? And then now that you've perfed, what are your, kind of your steps to addressing it? I think one of the keys for avoiding perforation is making sure you're as comfortable as possible in your approach. And so sometimes like you can tell that just the way that somebody is sitting or, or approaching the globe, that it's just not the best angle. And so that's sort of uh, the first step to make sure that, that your angle, that the way that you're holding the suture is as good as possible to decrease the chance that you're going to be, be perfing. Uh, the other thing is that I usually tend to hold the suture a lot lower. Um, on the suture so that it's easier to pass a, a straight pass instead of dipping downward um, and taking a bigger bite. Um, and so those are the main ways that I try to avoid uh, a perforation there. 
unfortunately, with the suture, um, the perforation issues are much smaller usually than um, than if you have a, a perforation when you're making a belt loop. Uh, but I think it's important to inspect that area, look for a break, uh, look for any hemorrhage that would uh, potentially make you want to actually go inside. But that's usually fairly rare with the sutures. You can usually just cryo that area if there's a break. And since it's right where the band is going to be, it's going to be well supported. Sarah, any additional comments? 30 seconds. No, I think the only additional comment is that I think there are some techniques when you're using the Castro Viejo. Um, usually what I do is I indent slightly with the Castro Viejo and then um, sort of put the heel down a little bit as I'm coming across. And as long as my initial cuts haven't perked, then that usually is pretty protective with the Castro Viejo. I believe I'm probably the only suture in this group, right? I suture sometimes. The, the one thing that I was going to say about suturing technique that can be helpful is letting the needle do the work for you. So if you're using a spatulated needle, starting perpendicular to the sclera uh, will allow you to get your initial entry. And then kind of uh, flattening the needle so you can come straight across is really helpful. And then once you get, once you've uh, gotten the needle through the sclera enough, you can start to turn and just continue to follow the curvature of the needle. And I think there te there's a tendency when you're really concerned about going deep, you try to avoid going perpendicular to the sclera to start, and you almost push down on the sclera uh, to try and get a straight entry. And when you do this, you create a little bit of a ripple uh, in the sclera wall. And that, I think, actually predisposes you uh, to perforating. And so even though it might feel a little bit more uncomfortable uh, going perpendicular to the sclera from the beginning. I think that that actually works better and allows the needle to do the work for you. Great points. And there's a, if you ever go to this place called the library where they have things called textbooks, there's some good pictures from old Buckland textbooks <laughs> that show that kind of ripple if you push down too much. The other thing that's key is not to make the dramatic turn. I think when you suture cornea or suture the tissues, you kind of make that, that turn. You use a curved needle driver to kind of turn the needle instead of pushing it through. But making that turn can be dangerous in thin sclera because you can put, push the swedge, which is the part where the suture enters the needle into the eye, and actually perf that way. So I completely agree. You make that entry, you should kind of just slide across and slow kind of slide. And you should be able to see the needle under the sclera just barely the whole time you're sliding. Uh, and then when you come out, avoid a dramatic turn, just kind of slide it out and then take the needle out. Um, so let's move forward, though. So this has been kind of scary. Um, I don't know if this has necessarily made me feel better about doing buckles, but there are a lot of other things that can go wrong during buckles. So, Sarah, you say, you know what? This is going great. We put the band on. Um, I cry with the break. I, now, I want to do a drainage. Uh, and let's not talk about drainage technique because there's different ways to do it. But let's say you do decide to drain, and you're draining, and fluid's coming out, and all of a sudden you see blood coming out of the drainage site. What do you do next? Right. So I think that's sort of what we all worry about when we drain is that we're going to get um, hemorrhage and that it'll either be a subretinal hemorrhage or a choroidal, but especially subretinal hemorrhage can really um, turn a, a great buckle sideways. So, um, you know, I, I think there's lots of different ways to drain. I think ideally it's important to try to drain at the area of maximum fluid and to also try to drain away from the brakes. So kind of trying to choose a good site that's going to get you to the least trouble possible. But even when you do that, you can still get a bleed. Um, I think sort of two things, it's important 
again, to sort of maintain intraocular pressure um, to make sure that you're not making a bleed worse. Um, if you have an infusion um, and you're doing this with a chandelier, um, you can have the infusion and, and bump it up. I don't normally do it that way, but um, we did do it sometimes at Bascom. Um, and then sort of once you get the hemorrhage, you know, I think you sort of have to make a decision about where you are in the surgery. Um, usually at that point, I'll stop the drainage. I've done my cryo. And then I'll usually try to just have the patient position in a way to minimize the chance that that hemorrhage will track into the macula and consider putting in a pneumatic and having them face down position. But I think once you have a bleed, it's trying to tampon on the bleed as best you can. And then um, at that point, trying to manage the bleed so it causes um, as little issues with the macula as possible. I think this really illustrates the importance when you're draining to be able to see your drain site the whole time, whether you use a needle or a cut down. If you can't see your drain site, you can't recognize problems, such as sudden cessation of drainage, which we'll talk about in the section. But let's, if you do see blood, just putting pressure, as you mentioned, Sarah, at the cotton tips, only tamping on the bleed. Andre, let's say you do that, the bleeding stops, you look inside, and now you see significant subretinal hemorrhage. And actually, it's extending into the macula. There's a large submacular hemorrhage. Sarah referenced putting in a gas ball and positioning the patient. Do you ever do anything more aggressive than that? Do you ever? What would make you decide, for example, to do a vitrectomy? Well, I think if that patient was a, a previously a macula not involving detachment and it was a very large subretinal hemorrhage, I would think about doing a vitrectomy. Um, I think when when I was on rotations with Bill Smitty, he would always um, you know talk to me about how if it's just a thin hemorrhage, you can often get away with not doing anything since these patients have a healthy RPE, unlike some of our wet AMD patients that get hemorrhages. But if it's a very thick hemorrhage, and especially if they were MAC on before, I would think about going in there and, and displacing the hemorrhage. So Ajay, you drain and your everything's going well, and all of a sudden the drainage just stops. It doesn't trickle to a stop, it just stops. What are you worried about? Definitely want to take a look inside, make sure that I don't have like incarceration or anything like that inside the drain site. Um, it's pretty rare, uh, but it would be something that I want to make sure that it looks okay. Um, sometimes you do just have some really uh, acute on chronic RDs where you have some very free-flowing fluid, and then after that it becomes very protonaceous chronic fluid that just uh, is tougher to get out through a, a smaller drain site. Basil, we're going to move forward. Let's say you drain, you pull your buckle up, and the retina is still not opposed and the brake's not fully supported. You referenced earlier the ability to put a gas bubble in, depending on the position of the brake. Let's say the brake is not in a position amenable to a gas bubble. Do you have to do anything else? And if you do, what else would you do at this point? So if, uh, if you have not positioned the buckle uh, in a location that it's actually going to support the brake, you do have to do something else uh, in order to make sure... Uh, that that's supported uh, for long enough for the cryo freeze to to scar down. And so I think there's a couple of different ways that you can approach this, and it depends a little bit on how large the break is and how posterior it is in relation to the buckle. So you can add um, one of the one of the easy tricks if it's just close to the end is as you trim your buckle, you can take uh, the ends of the buckle that you have trimmed and just slide it underneath the buckle in that location, and also. Oftentimes, that'll provide a little bit of extra support in that area and sometimes can do enough that it can actually completely support the brake. Uh, and then you would also uh, want to consider adding an element in that area uh, for a little bit more support. So if it's really, really posterior, then um, you could consider adding like a 287 tire um, 
which will provide a lot of uh, posterior support in that area. Sarah, you and I were once in the OR and had to kind of look up on the fly while we were operating um, different kind of <laughs> elements and things to use. I think the statute of limitations has passed where we can talk about this. What were yeah. uh, what, Basil the just talked about a great trick. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> what else can you use besides taking a piece of your band? You mean other than the shade lounge? I can't remember what the element is called. I just know that it looks like a chaise lounge. Oh, it does look like a chaise <laughs> you know, lounge. Like, That's true. We should keep this in. It this looks is great. like a yeah. chaise lounge, but it, I can't remember a, what it's called. I don't think it looks like a chaise <laughs> lounge, actually, but I'm going to pretend like it I looks like it just for you. Because I liked it so much. That you went and bought a chair? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think you're talking about a, one, a 106 element or a 112? Yes, yes. That's obviously I was getting there. I, I knew the numbers. <laughs> So, Ajay, Ajay, are there ever scenarios where it's okay to that the brake is not opposed at the end of the case and you're not putting gas? You know, it's, uh, there certainly can be continued RPE pumping that's, uh, that continues well after your initial placement of the buckle. And so um, I think especially inferiorly that, that happens um, quite often. And you can watch that fluid continue to to go away, um, even if it isn't completely opposed. Um, but if it's a superior break, then I certainly would uh, be leaning towards putting a gas bubble in there to, to try to reoppose it quicker. And I would say to Ajay's point, especially if they're younger and you, and they their hyoid isn't up, that vitreous is sort of helping you by acting as a tamponade, uh, pushing inferiorly. So I agree. That's sort of the one scenario in a, in a, pretty young patient with an inferior break, even if there's some fluid underneath the break, that's when I'll sort of say, yeah, that's fine. And, and usually they do quite well. We have a bonus question to decide all the apples or whatever jelly beans. I don't remember the, there's a phrase for it. This one's for all the jelly beans. Is that what they say? Marbles, marbles, not jelly beans. Okay. Basil, <laughs> for all the jelly bean marbles. What is this reference from? <laughs> I don't know. The, the next day, you take the patch off. We're going to get really serious. And the patient's like, I can't see anything. And you look in, and the nerve is pale. And the retina is white. What happened, and how could you have avoided it? Well, um, in this scenario, you can check the pressure. You can see how much uh, pain the patient is in. Sometimes the pressure can be high. But in this scenario, uh, you're concerned about the buckle. Uh, having some occlusion on the areas of the vasculature, potentially the, the vortex veins. And so I, I think it's helpful to really uh, assess your anatomy um, very well when you're putting on the sure that you're not um, compressing the vasculature and that the buckle is not too tight um, as well. You know, Ajay, Jim Vander is one of your partners now when I was a fellow. He told me if you have one job during a buckle, it's to check the nerve at the end before you close. Um, and let's say you do see that nerve is pulsating, then that tells you that your IOP is a little out of whack. Whatever your, your IOP kind of perfusion balance is, is not in line. So you need to do something about that. So how do you kind of in your head manage the different things that affect your IOP during surgery? Let's say like, you're like, well, I need to leave the buckle at this height because that's how I need to support the brake. So I can't necessarily loosen the buckle. I've drained as much as I can. What else can you do at that point? So you can certainly do an AC paracentesis um, to drop down the pressure. Um, I usually tend to, to do an AC paracentesis actually before I inject gas inside, anticipating a, a big elevation um, of pressure. 
from that, that gas injection. But I think that would be my, my first step if I look inside and uh, I see the change and I'm concerned about the pressure being elevated, um, especially if I feel like I can't uh, loosen the buckle. Um, you know, if, if that doesn't do the trick and it's just that that buckle needs to be loosened, I think uh, it's worth trying to loosen it and see if you still have enough support. Um, and if not, you can always think about converting to a vitrectomy also. But, but my first step would be to drop the pressure down and see how it does. Guys, I want to thank you all so much. We did, we kind of broke the rules. The timer kept going off and we were going over, but I thought it was important to talk about. Despite all of that, I think all of us would vote that there are problems that can happen when you buckle, but it's still worth knowing how to buckle and it's a great procedure for the right patient. And uh, I'm glad we could cover this. And really, I think buckles are generally pretty safe. You know, I think there's a couple of things you just need to be aware of that can go wrong, but they work really, really well. And actually there's probably less things that can go wrong during a buckle than a vitrectomy if we count them up. Um, we probably covered everything here whereas vitrectomy probably fill another two or three episodes. So thank you for your time. Uh, before we go, uh, we are recording this on the heels of this social media fur over this vascular surgery article about social media accounts used by applicants talking about inappropriate quote unquote pictures, including pictures drinking alcohol or with bikinis, et cetera. And it got a lot of backlash for kind of A, targeting women and B, kind of arguing for really things that may not be that unprofessional for a doctor to be pictured holding a glass of wine, for example, or a drink. Um, and it got published, actually it was presented a year ago, published recently, and now they've retracted the article and apologized, both the editor of the journal and the authors have apologized. Um, we'll kind of work our way back. Sarah, any, any thoughts when you heard about this story and read about this article? Well, so actually, uh, when I saw this on social media, I actually have read the article because I was sort of curious. One of the things I found is in this age of uh, sort of how the news cycle runs, a lot of times there's a lot of reaction. Um, and so there's some things that are bad about the article, I think, and and then some things that probably aren't so bad. You know, they got a lot of gripe because they made anonymous accounts, but they probably should have made anonymous accounts because the idea was if you search for a doctor's name on Facebook without any of similar friends or similar backgrounds, who comes up when you search your doctor's name and what pictures are available to patients? And it's actually a reasonable question, I think, because even though we want our patients to be as accepting and understanding and um, as sort of woke as we all are, you know, sometimes they're not. And that doesn't mean that you still shouldn't be their doctor. And part of being a doctor is being able to be someone there for when they're at their most vulnerable and scared. And, um, and in those sort of situations, it's really not about you or whatever your agenda is outside of your job. And so I do think it's an important question to try to understand, well, what are people putting out there in public areas on social media and could potentially affect their efficacy as a doctor? And I don't think that that is an unreasonable question. I think the fact that the, you know, the study was done by three men is an issue and it's three men in their thirties or something like that, which maybe really isn't the demographic that you're going after in the first place. And perhaps the criteria that they looked at, which seemed to focus a lot on what people wearing and maybe a little less on, you know, views on homophobia or racism or all these other things that may be more of an issue you know, weren't really addressed. 
So I, I do think there's an issue with this paper. So I don't really think that the thought process is necessarily, or at least the larger question of how we as doctors present ourselves publicly on social media. I actually think that that is a reasonable question to ask, but I'm not too sure a 35-year-old on a computer in their basement is the person necessarily to ask it. <laughs> so there's a lot to unpack there. Uh Starting with the fact, I think that's the first time the word woke has ever been used on this podcast, which is phenomenal. Um, and so I was trying to think of a better way to say that. And finally, I was like, I don't know. I think it's just woke at this point. That was the best word. Um, Basil, I mean, your thoughts quickly. But, you know, Sarah brought up a couple interesting points. I think there's a really fascinating point. You know, I've written articles or been in articles we've written about, for example, um, gender diversity, socioeconomic diversity, racial diversity, you know, whether it's when our patient populations in ophthalmology. And I think I've always tried, and Ajay, we've talked about this, which would make an active effort to make sure the authorship group is diverse, not just simply for the fact that you want to say afterwards, oh, well, we had a diverse authorship, so you can't criticize us, but it's more you actually benefit from that diversity, right? You need to kind of have multiple people putting input, and you almost wonder if the authors had a woman join them or someone from a slightly different demographic join them then maybe the questions and kind of things they looked at would have been completely different. They would have brought up different things. So I would almost argue this shows the value of diversity and what can happen when you don't have diversity, how you can get into trouble in terms of how you approach a problem because you have three people who may use an issue similarly and they're kind of have this tunnel vision and groupthink where they miss the forest for the trees where you know a lot of people come out and say, you know what, this was not smart. This did not make sense. And maybe I don't know the, the, the demographics, you know, vascular surgery, they talked about kind of the difference between there's so many more male surgeons than female surgeons. But I just wonder, again, if they had a little more diversity and we had more diversity in general, we would avoid problems like this. I agree with you completely. Um, I think obviously there's going to be a number of blind spots that individuals are going to have. And I think if you have the same, if you have people from the same demographic, whether it be uh, by uh, sex or age or socioeconomic status, as you were saying, you're, you're going to run into some of those same blind spots. Uh, I also think Sarah's point is well taken, uh, that you have to be careful how you present yourself based on how patients uh, may take that. But there's also a balance between knowing that you're a human, that you have a life outside of work, um, and that you're a regular person where patients are able to actually see that and they can perhaps relate a little bit more. So doing that in a way that's professional, um, I think is obviously helpful. The concept or idea... Um, that being in a bathing suit of any sort is somehow unprofessional is a little bit of a challenge. And I think when you're, and, and I, think, I think in this scenario specifically, uh, like you said, not having people from a wide range of backgrounds might allow you to miss it. But it, it, it seems hard uh, for me to understand when you focus specifically on something like that. Um, it just it seems like you're missing the the bigger picture as to what the study seems like it was supposed to be about. And I would just piggyback off of what Baz said, because I do think there's been a lot of stories, especially with COVID and even before that, in sort of the deep learning algorithms about how ER patients are treated, but or about how pain control is given to patients. And we're seeing time and time again that our health system is falling short on treating racial minorities or areas of lower socioeconomic status, of poor pain control for women, um, that we, that doctors who are having blind spots about their patients 
are actually doing their patients a disservice. And so I think even more to the point is I don't care if my doctor wears a bikini, but if they are posting controversial views about minorities or women or sexual orientation, well, that really does affect potentially their ability to be a doctor and to be my doctor. And so I I do think they prioritized what the problems were really incorrectly. And I think that's the take-home point that a lot of people are coming away with is, you know, yes, social media may be something that we should be concerned about, but who decides what to be concerned about? And I, I just think the priorities that they listed here are, are not great. And Ajay, more eloquently. Yeah, I would, yeah, I would, yeah, I just wanted to say I agree with everything Sarah said. I cannot say it better than, than how she just said it. Um, that was, that was a super, well, Ajay, super good Ajay, uh, synopsis things... of that. <laughs> Audrey, one of the things we've talked about, and we've written papers together, is sometimes it's just helpful to have more people look at what you wrote. So someone can just look at it yeah. and be like, hey, guys, like, this doesn't, like, I understand where you're coming from. It could be something as simple that's not controversial. Like, you're trying to explain this point. You guys both understand what you're trying to say, but I'm reading this as someone who doesn't have the background. I have no idea what you're trying to say here. Or I read it this way when I know you don't mean it this way, but this is how it comes across to me. And this is why it's really, really important. Yeah. You know, we do have papers that have three authors or two authors who contribute, but I think it's just important in general, whether you're an applicant out there is listening, you're writing your personal statement or you're writing a paper, the more people you can have look at it and kind of give you a clean kind of unbiased, because you can spend so long writing a paper and working on little intricacies in the data and this and that, and you may miss the whole forest for the trees for how it actually looks when you read the whole paper top to bottom. Yeah, that's a cool. great point. And um, I think it, it definitely speaks to the importance of, of having uh, different kinds of experts on your papers to help you with, with different aspects of it. But then even just like, you know, sometimes we talk about the perspective of, of how the message is, is coming across and trying to think about the perspective of, of somebody else reading it who doesn't necessarily agree and adjusting our discussion to, to kind of fit those kind of, uh, those kind of issues. And, and I think that, that it's just very important to either include somebody else who has a different perspective or keep that different perspective in mind when you're when you're putting it together and actually putting it out there yeah well, when we're talking about different perspectives uh i think it's unfortunate uh you would expect the peer review process in analyzing this to have had some level of commentary on this <laughs> and i think not only is there an importance in having diversity in the authorship um but having editors and reviewers uh, be from various backgrounds. Now, obviously, it's a little bit challenging in the peer review process. You're having two or three reviewers, and you might not be able to um, make sure that it's as diverse a group as possible. And I know a lot of people are busy and don't necessarily want to review, but you would have liked to have seen the review process uh, identify the issues in this and, and bring it up at that time. So uh, I think the diversity in the review process is also really important. Great point. You know, that's a phenomenal point. I mean, some of the onus has to be in the journal. Actually, you could argue that most of the onus has to be in the journal because they chose to publish this under their flag, right? So, I mean, that is a phenomenal point. And the peer review process is really good in some ways. It's definitely benevolent. It's super imperfect. You know, we have all had this where we've written, you could write the same paper and send to two different, the same journal and just get a completely different reviewer editor and get a completely different kind of edit back, right? 
That's just the nature of subjectivity and differences between people and how much attention they pay. But Basil, you're right. You know, this would be kind of a case example. We don't know the diversity of the reviewers, the diversity of the editor who read this, but you can understand again that they didn't either see this problem. And I think this is a point that Ajay, we've discussed and I've discussed with other people, like one of the problems with peer review in this age where we're trying to get everything out is, you know, speed but this was out for a year they presented this at a conference and and the fact that it was presented at a conference and no one really said anything until it was out in print is kind of crazy too um i don't know sarah any last thoughts before we break well because i felt like that was a really good point about the editors and staff i have now spent a few moments here looking at the editors and staff of the journal of vascular surgery and can confirm that they are all men which is out of nine surprise nine out of nine i'm not I mean, I mean this in no sort of way saying it's okay. It's not surprising, right? Like that doesn't mean it's right. No, I But it, if you if you look at most good. of the surgery, even in ophthalmology, which among the surgery subspecialties is quote unquote more diverse, there is a huge gap. And whether that's the difficulty sometimes in attracting women to that position, but some of it is also just women. There's been barriers to women and people with greater diversity in their background moving up the ladder. It just takes time for these changes to happen. That's not an excuse for it not happening. But yeah, that does not surprise me at all, Sarah. And it wouldn't surprise me if the audience that heard this presentation was a significantly male audience given the makeup of the vascular surgery population. I mean, again, the people who went on social media were bashing this article, I don't believe were vascular. You have to trace the origins in this back. I don't know who first put this up, but I would be surprised if it was a vascular surgeon, or I guess it wouldn't shock me if it was not a vascular surgeon. It was someone who just happened to run across it and put it up just because there are so few women in vascular surgery. Right. And, and if that's the scenario and it's presented at a conference in a meeting, uh, it's a little bit more challenging to speak up and say something then um, just because of the, the demographics in the room and, and your level of feeling comfortable speaking up. So, um, yeah, so I think there's a number of challenges that come along with this and uh, we still have a lot of work to do uh, in medicine and as a society. Optimistic words to end, I hope, after a, a pretty <laughs> negative podcast about things that can go wrong. Um, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Sarah, if I, you think about this, like, from a while ago, you know, it's. I feel like it's optimistic that, like, people got upset about it. Yes, and true. That the journal heard true. it and, and took the complaint seriously. I think... I think the, I agree with you. It shouldn't have had to take a whole bunch of doctors in bikini post pictures to uh, to get the message across. But I think it's an important one about how we prioritize ourselves as doctors and what we think is important in a doctor um, for ourselves and for our peers. I think that's a it's an important conversation to have. Absolutely. And, it, you know, it would be an interesting spinoff study. I don't know how you would publish this. It would be an interesting study, Sarah, to go back through the literature, let's say the general surgery literature, through 30 years or something and see how many articles with similar sort of implications or kind of offensive implications were there that no one ever said anything about, right? That just, <laughs> it was a different era. No one spoke up. No one even noticed them. Maybe they, they, like Basil said, they noticed it, but didn't have a platform to speak up. It's a lot easier to speak up given social media than it is in a meeting in front of your colleagues and mentors. And yeah, it's, it's, that, that would be kind of a fascinating study. I don't know how you designed that, but to see how much is, was kind of just hidden and never commented on. Ajay, I'm sorry, we completely destroyed your night. I mean, I guess it destroyed everyone's night, but um, Sarah's preparing <laughs> for a hurricane. Um, 
I've got nothing better to do on a Sunday night, and Basil, I'm sure, has better things to do as well. But he actually, you don't have a time difference, Basil. I, feel, I apologize to you too, um, guys. Thank you so much for spending almost an hour with me tonight, and uh, hopefully the listeners benefit. And if you guys uh, loved hearing about these complications, loved hearing Sarah Reed uh, laugh at every one of my bad jokes, then please let us know, and we will come back with another complications podcast uh, in a few weeks. Guys, have a great night. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much. Take care. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. You can find all 256 episodes there sorted by category. You can also find links to subscribe and receive emails as new episodes release. You can also subscribe in the Apple Podcast or Android Podcast app on your mobile device. We are on Facebook and on Twitter at Retina Podcast. And to contact me, contact me directly, email me at retinapodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing feedback, things we can do better, things we are already doing well. And also remember, anyone who uh, wants to, it really helps us you leave a positive review in the uh, Apple Podcasts or Android Podcasts app. Thank you to our team of doctors for joining me for this Bubble Complications episode. Thank you to Dr. Louis Kai, Dr. Angela Chang, and Dr. Mike Vinicasa for putting together this episode's social media and production. Thank you, listeners, for what you do on a daily basis, the articles you read and publish, the conversations you inspire here each week, and most importantly, the patients you take care of every single day. This is Jay Schreeder signing off.